Good morning. I got to go to the huddle also this last week, and I say that for two reasons. And the first one is I have to beg for a little bit of grace. Everybody has long weeks, and at the end of a long week, to try and put a message together makes for an even longer week. And so if I stutter or lose my place or whatever, it's about God. And so we, we just, we'll just ask him to work his word this morning. But that's one part. The second part is, you know, we've been, we've been talking to the resurrection and we've been talking about if there is no resurrection, then why bother? If there's no resurrection, why do you do what you do? And on the flip side of that, are we living in a way that that contrast closes up? That we, that we really have a life that, that in the end is pitiable if there's no resurrection. And I got to sit in a room with a group of families that have so committed their lives to the kingdom of God that convicting is one word. Another word, it's just, it's infathomable with these, these families, what lengths they go to to call people to worship God. And, and I just got, for two days, three days, I don't know how long we were there, two weeks, <laughs> uh, to sit in a room with these families and just listen to stories of, of trials and things that they're trying and going through and, and, and moving from one place to another and whatever they need to do to see people worship God, they'll do. And that tremendously blessed me, especially on the tail end of this message. Because right? you do see that their life is totally a pity if there's no resurrection. Right? There's not one of them that's calling people to be moral and good people. and not, It's not that. Now, granted, that's an outcome. But they're calling people to worship God through Jesus Christ. And that's it. And if there's no resurrection, their life, why bother? And so I got to see that firsthand. And it was just an incredible blessing to me. Well, this morning we are going to close up this section, this this uh, topic. So this is part three of the hope and the resurrection. And we're going to go through the vision and we're going to cover a lot of verses. So if you don't have a Bible, scrounge around and find a Bible there. One of the black pew Bibles, because we're going to do some sword drills this morning. Now, I've prepped everything. And so you see all the yellow stickies. We're going to be bouncing around this morning because I want to actually get in and, and read some of these places that really enhance what, what this passage is, how it's ending. So we're going to cl- conclude this morning. Well, let's look at the roadmap, where we're actually going to go. These last few verses are talking about how the resurrection is going to occur. And so the big word here is eschatology, which is a word that really just means last science, or we say the study of end times or the study of last times. And so here, there's a number of places in Scripture that, that Paul gives us a view of what the end is going to look like. Now, to some of us, the word end there might be a surprise. But this world as we know it is going to one day come to an end. And Jesus shows us what that end is going to look like. And so we have this thing called eschatology or the study of the end as we see through Scripture the glimpse that Jesus gives us for the end. And then starting next week, Brother Danny's going to go through what's on the other side of the end. 
right? And, and, and look at the eternal state in, in heaven and, and what that looks like. So there's the first place. And then we're going to use the last, the last verses in this section to kind of wrap everything back up because that's exactly what Paul does. He sticks a bookend right on the end of this section in verses 29 through 34 to kind of conclude. And so we can use that to summarize the last four weeks. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pray. God, it's your word. And God, we would just pray that you would use it. God, to encourage us to draw nearer to you. God, encourage us to move toward you where you want us to be. God, if there's somebody not here, Lord, that you would use your word to draw them to yourself this morning. We just pray you bless this time. And Holy Spirit, be here. Work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so verses 20 through 22. We're going to be reading. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 20. Now, we read verse 20 last week, but not really as part of the passage. We just we just stuck it there on the end because we didn't want to leave it in the downer that if there's no resurrection, you're worthless. Your life is just useless and pitiful and all that. We didn't want to leave it there. We wanted to say, yes, but there is a resurrection. So that's what we're starting this week is after that verse 20, the but. But now, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all have been made alive. Okay, put on your thinking hats here. Starting in verse 20, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, those who have gone through the New Testament and even the Old Testament, we see numbers of places where other people have come back to life. This this dying and coming back to life is not totally foreign to the body. It's not Jesus is not the first person who was once dead and came back to life. And we see passages in First Kings where Elijah rose, or the poster child is Lazarus, right? Lazarus had died, and Jesus went to the grave, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. He went from dead to alive. And so, what does this mean, the first fruits, the first to be resurrected from the dead? And so, the first thing is, there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection, Everyone through the Bible, you'll notice that came back from the dead soon after died again. Right. Soon after died again. And so they weren't really changed from a mortal state to an immortal live forever state. They were simply resuscitated. It wasn't actually a resurrection where they took on an immortal body. Okay, so that's the first piece we have to grab a hold of. The second one is. What does first fruits mean? Now, not being Hebrew and not being accustomed to all the offerings and sacrifices, we may not really have a hold on what the first fruits are. So if you would, now we're going to jump all the way back into Leviticus again. And I know this is the third time we've gone to Leviticus, but we're going to go there again. Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to start verse 10. Leviticus 23 verse 10. 
Now what this does is it, it's going to show us what the offering of the first fruits was. So Paul here is using an analogy. He's using something from, from the Hebrew way of life to express a point. And he does this in different ways at different times throughout the New Testament. We see that he uses this, this first fruits example to push a, a point home a number of times. And we're going to look at a couple of them. And this is where it's coming from. Leviticus 23, verse 10. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land which I am going to give you to reap the harvest, then you shall bring in a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. So this is an offering that the Lord set up for the Israelites that when you're going to bring in the harvest, the first thing you do is bring in the first fruits to the priests and then the priests get to eat those. You're going to offer to the Lord, and then that's part of the, priest, the way the priests stay alive. Because if we remember, the priests weren't given an inheritance of land. We're not going to go here. But how they sustained their life is they got food from these offerings. Okay? And so the Lord set up this, this system where people would bring in their first fruits. But what was the purpose? Well, this was a celebration. It was a celebration because if the first fruits came... That guaranteed that the field was full. Okay? You don't get a first fruits offering if there's nothing in the field. Catch that for a second. If there's going to be no harvest, you don't go and grab some stuff from your neighbor's field and take it in for a first fruits offering. So the first fruits offering was a guarantee that there's a future harvest. Already some of us are putting that together when we say that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we've talked about what his resurrection is doing. It's a precursor to our resurrection. And so when Paul says he's the first fruits, he's saying he's a guarantee of the remainder of the harvest, which is us, the believers in Christ. It's the guarantee. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that our resurrection is there. Our harvest is there, ready to be with God. Now, I told you we're going to move around a lot. So Romans, let's go to Romans chapter 8 for a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Now we're back in the New Testament. This passage is kind of giving us another example of how Paul uses the term first fruits as a guarantee. I love this verse. Verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now I'm going to flesh that out a little bit. This morning we're sitting in here. We're worshiping and we got a nice long extended period of worship. And while we're singing, it's critical that you're allowing all of you to enter into that time where you're just pouring yourself out to God. Is there a time where you just got to stop and pray? Is there a time where you just want to sing so loud that if you have a bad voice, your neighbor's going to just kind of move over? Is there a time when you really just want to raise your hands and just be in the presence of God? What we're getting there is the first fruits of the Spirit. 
God is giving, even though in this, in this life, in this body, we are going to struggle with the flesh. We're going to struggle with sin. We're never going to get a full view of Christ and his glory while we're in this body. But we all have the Holy Spirit. Every one of us is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And it says we get the first fruits of the Holy Spirit and it makes us groan for the redemption of our bodies. It makes us long to be with God because we get to see little pieces of it. And so even this morning as we were worshiping, was there a sense that just said, oh, I just want to take that next step and just go all the way home? Right? Because you groan for that redemption of your body. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you get these little pieces, and it's a guarantee of what's to come. That's how Paul uses it here in Romans 8. And he says, the Holy Spirit shows you what the redemption of your bodies is one day going to look like when you're standing in front of God by the throne, and, and there's nations, and there's all these people, and you're all just praising and worshiping God together. You're getting a glimpse of that. The first fruits of what's to come. Okay? If there is no first fruits offering, there's no harvest in the field. But the first fruits offering is guaranteeing what's to come. So Jesus Christ is our first fruits. All right, the next piece there, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. So now let's flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5. And we're just going to read verse 12. If you want to really get a full picture of what this means. When Paul says, in Adam we all died, in Christ we all raised. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 21 unpacks this totally for us. We're just going to get a touch of this in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's Anthropology 101, the study of man. In the beginning... God did not create man to die. God created man to live with him forever. Immortality. God did not create man to die. Okay? So in the beginning, in the garden, with God, there was no death. When sin entered the world, sin brought death. So, you want to ask your neighbor, are you a sinner? And they say, no. All you really have to do is say, are you going to die one day? It closes it right there. Because when sin entered the world, death became a curse on humanity. All of us, at one time, will die. Because through sin, through Adam's sin... All of man died. All of man, death now reigns. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, that's not fair. Well, he goes on to just flesh that out a little more. He says, okay, now, not only that, but then God added the law so that sin would increase. 
more and more and more and more and more. Because if Adam didn't sin first, you'd eventually come around and done it anyway. And so death would have still made its way into the human race. The curse of death, the separation from God. Through one man, sin entered and with it came death. Why is the gospel good news? Why is the resurrection so important? Because the resurrection took death away. It took the potency of death away. No longer does mankind have to just stay dead. Our hope is that one day in Christ, we will be resurrected just as Christ was to immortality. Not just resuscitated so that we're going to die again, but raised back to life to live with him forever. So the law was given that sin might increase. So now, if you sit down, anybody, I think, in this room, if we were to ask, do you sin? Other than a, a person that I, I think it was you on a plane, somebody had talked to a, a guy on a plane and asked him, are you a sinner? And he just said, no, nope, never sinned. I've never done anything wrong. The rest of us probably have a different look at reality. We see that our lives, there are, there are numerous things that if we look in the mirror, we say, you know what? Oh, even if we don't know what it is God calls us to. But if we do know what God calls us to, it makes that gap feel all the more further, doesn't it? We talked about that last week, that there's this contrast between who we know God calls us to be and what I say I believe and what my feet actually do all week. There's this huge contrast. And the more you realize what kind of perfection God calls you to, the bigger this gap gets. And it gets just overwhelming. But then we said, the good news is, the resurrected Christ paid for that sin and took death away. That's the whole point of this, this passage here. Yes, through sin, death entered the world through Adam. But, in Christ, that death, the sting of death, was taken away. So now that contrast, though there is so much, Christ is what fills that gap. And by trusting in him, even though we see in our minds that we don't measure up, God covers us. We said it's like the light switch. God gives us his righteousness and makes us light. There is no darkness anymore. Contrast isn't there. Because we have Christ's righteousness because of what he did. There's one piece of bookkeeping we have to take care of here. And in every commentary that I read, it points this out first about what this verse doesn't say. And so it's probably important that we hit a quick what it doesn't say. Let's read in verse 22 for as an Adam all die. So also in Christ, all are made alive. Now, every week we have some other ism that we talked about. We talked about dualism and Gnosticism and all these isms. And this week, the ism is called universalism all of these isms this isn't just a theology lesson these are things that people believe and and they'll tell you when you're on the street here's what universalism looks like it really doesn't matter what you believe because as long as you're sincere about what you believe you're going to go to heaven 
Well, you know, if we push it far enough, it really doesn't matter if you're sincere or not. Because in the end, God is love and God is going to bring you to heaven. God would never do anything just. God would never condemn someone to hell. He would just never do that. I serve a loving God. God wouldn't do that. That's universalism. And oftentimes they'll point to this verse and say, see, it says right here, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But if you look at the bulk of Scripture, that's not what this says. And in fact, even if you look at this verse, the two alls are different. The whole context of what Paul is talking about here is the resurrection of believers. And he's specifically speaking of resurrection of believers here. When he says all of those in Christ, and in the next verse we're going to see it. But we'll get to that when we get there. We see that those that are in Christ will be raised. And so this is not talking about universalism that, you know what, in Christ everybody's given the opportunity to go to heaven. Well, yeah, everybody's given the opportunity but we do have to take that opportunity, right? We have to receive Christ as Lord or this isn't speaking to us, okay? Just know that if this verse, if somebody uses this verse to tell you that all people will be in heaven, that isn't what it's saying. So I think the phrase that we like to use here is without context, there is no text, right? Something like that. And so if you read this in context, then you see right away we're talking about the resurrection of believers, not the resurrection of everyone. Okay, let's move on. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Now we're actually getting to the order of the resurrection. Okay? How things are going to happen. To each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then those who are Christ's at his coming. And so that's the verse that I said, as long as we put this into context, you see right there, it says, those who are in Christ at his coming, they're the ones that are going to be raised. Okay? During this resurrection period, there are four, and and really three, but we're going to do four, different pieces of what this resurrection looks like. Okay? First, uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So we're going to have to go back a ways past our 1 Corinthians. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to read verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend, we sang about this this morning, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're looking forward to the resurrection, aren't we? He says right there, comfort each other with these words. That everything that you do, this pitiful life that you lead because you're a believer, it's not so pitiful. Because we're living for what God is doing. We're living for the resurrection. Comfort each other with these words. Let's look at the the sequence of events here. First, the dead in Christ will rise bodily. Bodily, they will be they will rise from the grave and be given bodies that are non-perishable. They'll be resurrected now not to die again. They rise first 
And then with that, those that are walking around life, they're just doing life. No, 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 They're believers in the church. They're snapped up to meet the old saints that have been dead and they meet Jesus in the air. Now, is that going to be a day? Wow. And if you're standing there watching it happen and you're not in the air yet. All right. After that, that the tribulation saints, I have a hard time separating the tribulation saints from those that are dead in Christ. But we see this in Revelation where it says they saw those under the altar that had been beheaded or were persecuted during the tribulation. The tribulation, what is that? Right before the end, there's going to be this block of time, a seven year period where part of that is going to be Satan's wrath taken out on the church. And a lot of believers are going to lose their life in that time. And so in Revelation, we see that there's a period where those will also be resurrected, those that lost their lives during the tribulation to reign with Christ in the millennium. Because then after that tribulation, Christ comes, that we're going to see in the next couple of verses, to set up his kingdom here on earth. So there are those tribulation saints that will also be raised up. And then we see in Daniel that the Old Testament saints, I'm not exactly sure where you put those, probably all in the same place, will also be raised up. And then this one was interesting because once Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth, so we have the tribulation, Christ comes, puts an end to everything, the, the end of, of, of uh, the tribulation, Christ comes and sets up his millennium kingdom, his thousand year reign. We're going to get to this in just a minute. Well, during that time, death has not been eliminated. Death has not been crushed and thrown into Hades. Death is still with us. And so there are going to be people that are going to be born and dying. Now, just picture this for a minute, because this gives us a view of what a Christian funeral should really look like. Okay? Think of this for a minute. If someone in the millennium believes in Christ, accepts Christ, and dies... He's going to lay down and die, and then he's going to just get right back up again. Immortal. Now that's cool. That gives you a vision of what the resurrection is really like. As I was reading through this and thought about the... This is, by the way, speculation. We don't, we don't have a nice example in the Bible where, where there's this millennium and somebody's going to die and stand back up again. Okay, But if those that are resurrected are resurrected immortal... Well, then those who die in the millennium, what happens? <laughs> they're, they're gonna, so it's just a picture there of what the resurrection and the purpose of the resurrection looks like. And for a Christian today, other than there's like this extended period between when your body dies and when it's risen, close that gap because think of it more like what happens in the millennium. When you die, you just get right back up again, immortal, because death no longer reigns over us. If we're in Christ, Christ has squashed death. There's nothing to fear there. We just get right back up. So that was fun to read that piece. The millennium. And then there is one other piece to the resurrection. That it says, after all of this is done, there's still a number of dead people in the ground. All of those that are not in Christ, at the end, will also be raised up. There is a resurrection for everyone. We see in John where Christ says they're going to be raised up 
but they're going to be raised up to face judgment. We sing a song and say, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. The question is, do you do it now or does it happen later? But everyone will be raised. Those who are in Christ will be raised, ushered into the kingdom of God. And those who are not in Christ will be raised and sent to hell with the devil. Not fair? Take it up with God because that's the plan. We titled this whole thing the vision of the resurrection. That's how God laid it out. He gives every one of us the the ability to come to Christ. And we need to respond to him. All right, last piece before we conclude. The restoration. Let's read this. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 24. And this is going to be a little longer. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Wow, that was a mouthful. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So God may be all in all. All right. Let's unpack this one. We already said in the timeline, we have current state where we are now. At the end of this current state, we're going to have this thing called the tribulation. The tribulation is where all this wrath, man's wrath, the devil's wrath, and there's a point where God's wrath is is brought about and the church is, is raptured out of that and the dead are raised. But then at the very end of that period, Christ sets up his reign. Now, nowhere in there do you see that evil is is just abolished totally. It says he's going to reign over everything. Everything will be in subjection to him. And the picture you get here is Joshua. When it says that everything has been put under my feet. When you read in Joshua, when he went into Jericho, that everything, all this destruction, and then they brought the kings. And where did Joshua put his foot? Right on the head of the king or on the neck of the king. All right, and so this, this passage, this everything will be under your feet, is, is a way of saying... All rules and all authorities are now fully under your submission. So everything, all the, all the rebellion, everything that's bad will not be tolerated in this thousand year reign. When it rises up, it's squashed. And Christ will reign for this thousand years. It doesn't mean there won't be some evil floating around. There won't be rebellion. It just won't be tolerated. And then at the end of that, it says Christ is going to take the kingdom, the kingdom that he has served, that he has been preparing. He's been washing with the word, his bride, the church, the believers. He's going to take it and he's going to hand the kingdom restored 
Because evil is gone now. Because at the sorry, I didn't put that part in there. At the end, he's going to take evil, death, everything, and cast it away. No longer to bother us. And he's going to hand that kingdom back to God the way it was created. And we're in that. Why not? Why didn't he just squash sin a long time before that and just, you know, keep it under his submission the whole time? And when I was in college, I got to do firefighting, uh, wildfires. And it's always better if you can sit around a fire and let it totally burn out. Because once it totally burns out, it doesn't matter if wind comes. It doesn't matter if the sun comes and heats it up. There's no more fire. It's gone. It's abolished. There's no potential there. Well, the same thing here. God's just going to let the whole thing just burn itself out. And then in the end, he's going to cast it away. And here's our hope, believers. That when it's cast away... You know the first fruits that we have, those glimpses of heaven that are tainted by sin and tainted by our flesh? and There's no more of that. There's no more sin to drag us out. There's no more sin to bother us and make us selfish. And It's just pure, unadulterated worship. We can be as we were created to be. And Christ then takes that kingdom... And hands it back to God. Hoorah. Sorry. That's, that's beautiful. So everything at that point is restored. This is a very difficult verse. Um, in everything I read, there are a number of very difficult verses in here. But this one where it says, Paul throws in there, Whoa, wait a minute. When he says all things in subjection, he doesn't mean God the Father himself. Because God the Father is the one that put everything in subjection to Christ. What's he doing there? He's adding some care to make sure that we don't try and build this Greek hierarchy of gods. Okay? When man sinned and death entered the world, Jesus started a job. The job was to restore this kingdom and bring it back to God. To redeem us. And ever since then, Christ has been acting as mediator. Right? It's told that when we pray, we, can, we pray through Christ and Christ mediates for us. He's the one that ushers us through Christ we get into heaven. Through Christ we get to be with God the Father. Through what Christ did, we did the big curtain that was ripped in half. Those of us, when you read the, uh, the gospel accounts, when Christ was, res- or when Christ was crucified, the, the curtain was torn. Through what Christ did, we can enter into the Holy of Holies and be with God. He's our mediator. That's the job he has taken. But he stepped out of his own glory. We see this in Philippians. He stepped out of his own glory to do that job for us and redeem us. And until the job is done, he stays in this this state of worker, of servant, of mediator. But when he hands this redeemed kingdom back to God, it says, then he himself will come back under subjection and God will be all in all. He'll be restored to the the glory that he was in at the beginning. And that God will be all in all. Okay? So that's the end piece of that verse. Now let's conclude things up because we, we need to wrap things up. So conclusion. Darn. Give me five extra minutes. Stay with me here. 
the conclusion. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If for human motives, I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow will die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now we're going to try and wrap this up quickly and I'm going to have to leave some concluding parts for small group discussions. But over this whole time, what have we been talking about? Because of the resurrection, there is a certain calling, there is a certain uh, desire for the Christian to live out the potential of that resurrection. We know that we're going to be resurrected and one day we're going to be with Christ. And because of that, that influences us. That influences us how we live, what we do, who we are. And you couple that with all of us having the Holy Spirit... And that makes an army of people called to reconcile other men to worship God. We see here, in that calling other people to God, verse 29. Otherwise, why are, why are, the dead, why are people being baptized for the dead? Now, again, every commentary starts off with telling what this verse doesn't mean. And so we have to say what this doesn't mean first. Okay? There are practices in certain cults where the dead that didn't follow the religion are gone and someone else who's a little more holy gets baptized for them so that they'll make it into whatever their reward. Okay. And often they'll point to this verse to say, see, they did it right here. Now, we know that isn't even close to what Paul could have meant. But at the same time, you ask yourself, well, all right, what did he mean? If he didn't mean that, that's kind of what it sounds like when you read it. What did he mean? Again, this is a place where we have to start looking at context. And if something in the Bible is you're reading it and you say, hmm, that doesn't make sense. You don't build a whole doctrine off of that verse that didn't make sense. You go back through the word and you find out other places that will build that up. Okay? There is no other place in scripture that talks about somebody being baptized for a dead unbeliever. And nowhere. And there are two other things. First, uh, those of you who just went through the baptism class, you learned baptism doesn't save you anyway. Right? It's an act. It's an act. And we're not going to turn there, but in Ephesians 2 we see that you're saved by grace through faith and it's nothing that you do. So it's not the act of baptism that saves you. So even somebody getting baptized for you, that doesn't work. And we see in John three sixteen right, that whoever believes in me, not whoever believes for somebody else. So we know it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean? It means, it could mean a couple of things. And here's two possibilities. One, when the believers would die, 
They would give a testimony. And all of you, and I've even said this, you're on your deathbed. You have your children there. Just think through this for a minute. What's the first thing you're going to tell them? I've said this over and over. I would tell them, be there. Be there. I'm checking out now. I'm dying. I'm gone. But be there. Don't you miss it. Because I want to live with you for eternity. Be there. And because of that, that testimony, that desire to be with them in heaven, they too come to Christ and get baptized. They're baptized because of the testimony of the dead. That's one possible meaning. Another one, or to see them again, the other one is close to that. It's just that their, their testimony is people are dying. At this time, there's all these martyrs. And it says, because that, that word for the dead could also be because of, in place of, there's all kinds of ways, I guess, to translate that word. What it doesn't mean is this vicarious baptism. Okay? I think we see the circles up there. And it says incentives for these three things. And for for flock discussions, I'm going to leave those last two. Why do I die daily if there's no resurrection? And as you're talking about this, the verse that says we should just eat, drink for tomorrow, we'll die, doesn't mean that we should just go and be gluttons, that we should just go get all the pleasure that we can get. What it's saying is there is a lot better life to live. If there's no resurrection, then... There's a lot better life to just lead. And so we often, you'll, you'll hear this conversation, you'll often hear, you know, even if there is no resurrection, being a Christian ain't so bad. You're moral, you're clean, you're good members of society. Play a good soccer game. Everything's cool. But I submit this to you. If that's what you think Christianity is, you may not be one. Now, that sounded kind of harsh. Let me say it a different way. Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is not about producing good moral citizens that make good money and keep the economy running and stay out of jail. That's not a Christian. A Christian is a man who who gives up his, his whole livelihood. I'm thinking of, where are you, Daniel? In check. And commits everything he has to see other people worship God. That's why it's pitiable. Because if there's no resurrection, you just wasted your whole life. There's nothing there. When you get up extra early to spend time with your family, to lead them in the word and to teach them, you know, you could have slept in. There are so many things you could have done better. And it isn't just about producing good moral people. If there's no resurrection, the things that you're doing, the real, the real Christianity, that piece of your life is a waste. But there is a resurrection. And so we end there with the desire for sanctification. That because of the resurrection... It says bad company corrupts good morals. What he's saying is bad teaching. If you let people teach you that, you know what? There's no resurrection. That's going to have an influence in how you act. 
Yeah, you might still be producing good moral people. But you're not going to fulfill what Jesus actually called us to. Let's end there. God, we, we ran quickly through the end part of your word there. But God, I trust that, that you'll still take that. And God, I pray that you encourage us to draw nearer to you. God, wherever we are, we just desire you more and more. Would you give us that glimpse, those first fruits of the Spirit? God, for anybody here that, that isn't yours, God, I pray that you, uh, you convict them this morning and, and draw them to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.